Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When you want to have more energy and, and more ability to write, it really comes down to one thing, one fundamental thing, and that's electrons. Um, at the end of the day, you're a battery. <laughs> Your job is to make enough electrons to do what you want to do. We call that energy. And you get your energy from food, you get your energy from uh, air, and you get your energy to some extent from light and magnetism, like, like there are important elements there. The, the problem that most people have is that they have unstable energy supply to their head. Your brain and visual processing system are probably using 20% of your calories. Your heart, your eyes, and your brain have about 10,000 mitochondria, these little power plants in your cells, uh, per cell. So they're very dense in energy consumption. The rest of your body has one or 2,000 per cell. So you have five to 10 times the energy consumption and energy production ability in your brain. That means, especially if you're smart and you're focusing a lot, if you have slight perturbations in your ability to bring energy into those cells, it's basically energy brownout. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dave, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, we had you back uh, in the day when we were called Blogcast FM, when we were primarily a podcast for bloggers. And, um, you know, your work has evolved as well as our brand having significantly, you know, transitioned from what it once was, because I know that your work extends far beyond keeping a blog. Uh, and we will definitely get into all of it. But where I want to start is by asking you, what is the most important thing you learned growing up from either a parent, a teacher, uh, or a coach that ended up having a profound impact on your life and the work that you've ended up doing? One of the things that uh, my parents did for me is they taught me to read when I was 18 months old. So I've been able to absorb a lot more information than, uh, than the average person uh, just because I've read more books. Uh-huh. And my reading speed when I was really young was higher than average. I think here now my speed's about, about normal. But just that, that love for books, love for reading, and love for knowledge has really helped me quite a bit. And it also had a, a likely side effect that when you spend a lot more time as a baby uh, reading than moving, it changes your nervous system and probably not in a positive way. So my functional movement skills are lower, but my cognitive skills are higher. Mm-hmm. And learning how to overcome and, and hack that to bring my neurology in line with the level of functional movement I wanted was also actually something I, I'm grateful for because it gave me a chance to learn how to biohack. Mm-hmm. 
So parents listening to this, I mean, they're going to hear one of two things. That sounds torturous. I should never do that to my kid. Or how the hell do I get my kid to read by 18 months? And I'm very curious, you know, you being a parent now, um, also being exposed to all of the sort of biohacking work that you've done, which we will get into in a lot of depth. Um, how, do, how, does that, how does that impact your perspective as a parent? What would you tell other parents about all of this? Well, what you do in the womb has more influence than what you do in year one. And what you do in year one has more influence than what you do in year two because you're basically putting in operating system rules in, in babies that tell them what the environment around them is like. Uh-huh. So I'm, my kids are, are going to a Waldorf school. They're late readers. And I'm focusing for the first seven years of life almost exclusively on neurological and emotional development. Mm-hmm. The way I look at it is uh, my kids will be plenty smart. They can read as much as they want. And my daughter does read as much as she wants, but she didn't learn to read as early as I did, uh, not by a long shot. But she did spend a lot more time climbing in trees. Mm-hmm. So I think that might be more important from an evolutionary biology perspective. Sure, I'll, sure. Tell you, I'll tell you in 18 more years. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that. I, I don't know if you've seen it. Michael Moore recently did a new documentary called uh, Where to Invade Next, and he goes to <laughs> Finland. <laughs> uh, to, to basically look at, you know, their education system. He looks at different social services in every, every country, uh, that he visits, but, you know, Finland has one of the best education systems in the world. And, you know, they, they said their secret is no homework. Uh, yeah. Like children need time to play, to laugh, to grow and to do all of these things. Um, I think, you know, what's interesting to me about what you said, um, chances are, I'm sure you probably know about the landmark forum. And one of the things that's interesting about Landmark is when they tell you about the Landmark Forum on the first day, they say, yeah, the Landmark Forum for kids is like half a day. The one for adults is like three days because adults are so fucked up that we have way more work (laughs) to do. And so, you know, having this perspective, why do you think it is that we don't prioritize these kinds of things um, in the way that we bring kids up, the way that we educate them? uh, And, you know, is it or is it just a matter of the fact that we haven't had the awareness until now to know all of this? I think we haven't had the awareness and there's also other stuff that that happens when you're an adult, you live in your head, you're cognitive, you think about stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you're a kid, you feel about stuff. And growing up is, is in large part, this idea of of learning to tell yourself stories about your feelings Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you're supposed to feel because even as adults, we feel things and then we tell ourselves a story about why we feel them when we're kids we just feel and act and with adults we learn to not act so the feeling happened we didn't act we thought about it and then we chose the correct response so it's that inhibitory response that allows us to not basically eat everything screw everything and kill everything which are the three (laughs) big behaviors we have right yeah (laughs) and when you're like five years old pretty much well you're not going to screw anything because you don't have the hormones yet right but otherwise you'll eat everything and break everything because that's just what you do (laughs) Uh, so when I look at this, this whole picture of it as adults, we assume kids are like many adults, but they don't have a prefrontal cortex till they're about 24. Uh It's not fully formed. They have it, but it's, it's not all the way solidified. So I think we do this because we don't understand, uh, what's going on from an emotional development perspective in kids very much at all. And every adult does their best. Every adult has all the programming that they received as young children. This is survival programming. Uh And, one of my, my passion projects is this thing called 40 Years of Zen, which is a, a very high-end executive uh, neurofeedback uh, uh, program, five days. And w- what we're doing there is sticking a bunch of electrodes on your head with a lie detector <laughs> so that you can see 
what, what, what programs you have running in your head that you got as a kid. And it's amazing how many people were almost dropped when they were two and now they're afraid of flying. And it's because the nervous system makes all these weird things and then you end up reacting in ways that you feel guilty about. But it, it's, all, it's all basic survival programming that your body was trying to put in place in those first seven years of life to make sense of the world before you could think about it. Mm-hmm. And to go through myself, I spent 10 weeks of my life with electrodes on my head uh, running a lie detector against myself. So I, I, I know my programming. In fact, I've been able to rewrite a lot of it so the voice in my head is gone. Like, I don't have a, a guilty voice criticizing me like I did when I was in my 20s or 30s and, and, and things like that. Most people, that's all invisible. That's just part of their condition. So, of course, it's going to affect how you parent. And I, I like to think that my work on personal hacking has changed how I parent. Okay, so we're, we're going to get into the rewriting and the reprogramming because I have so many questions about that. But before we get there, um, walk me through sort of you know early high school, like what you were and how it piqued your interest in all this stuff and, and kind of the journey from there to who you are today. Like what social groups were you a part of in high school, college, and how it led to all the things that you've ended up doing? Well, I grew up in a, in a basement, uh, which was a nice. We had a, a, a nice house. It was a fully finished basement, but it had been flooded. And my bedroom had toxic mold growing behind the walls. <laughs> and, uh, no one knew about this in the 80s. So I was always inflamed. I actually was obese as, as a kid, and uh, I, I just always had nosebleeds, like like sometimes five or ten a day, which is a classical sign of mold exposure, as well as behavioral problems that come from this. So I had like oppositional defiant disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder and ADD, and and on top of that, I was I'm six four, and I peaked out at about three hundred pounds, and I'm around like two twenty right now, and, and relatively muscular. So I looked at what happened back then, and, and there's something called Napoleon's complex. And this is why Napoleon, who was like three feet tall, I have no idea how tall he was, but he was short, he invaded Europe because he had something to prove. Well, when you're in seventh grade, uh, the shortest guys in school all have something to prove, which means they have to go try and beat up the big guy, completely ignoring physics. <laughs> this would be the lack of prefrontal cortex. And I, I can remember one conversation with this little, little kid was you know, wanted to get in a fight with me. I'm like, dude, you need to understand physics because I can like I can put my hand on your face and you can't touch me. <laughs> like this is not going to go well. And of course, it never goes well. Uh, so I, I got in a good number of fights. I never threw a first punch, but I usually threw the last one because I was bigger and fatter. And you know, you can sit on someone who weighs sixty pounds less than you, and they really can't do anything about it. Uh, that's not a really healthy way to grow up. So I, I didn't have a big social circle. I, I was not considered one of the cool kids by a long shot. And I frankly didn't know most of my classmates' names and I didn't make eye contact with them because I had most of the symptoms of Asperger's syndrome and Asperger's runs in my family. So I was somewhere on that end of the spectrum. And I, I've changed myself biologically and neurologically to the extent that people who knew me 20 years ago usually don't even recognize me. I mean, they know my name, they might know my voice, but otherwise I'm, I'm a very different looking and acting human being. And, and there's a lot of change that's possible there. I look back to what I, I was like uh, back then. I, I played soccer for 13 years until my, my knees failed. I had arthritis in my knees when I was 14. Uh, three knee surgeries by the time I was 23. Uh, I started getting stretch marks when I was 16. I still have a ton of stretch marks. And, uh, I'm actually working on a little side project about like how do you prevent that from happening for people. 
Uh, I've managed to lose the weight, but I still have like zebra stripes on my on my hips and my butt and my uh, my abdomen, uh, which probably won't go away even with like lasers and cool stuff like that. So it, it's it's not that it matters that much. I have kids. I'm married. Like it, it's more just can I overcome that versus I don't feel adequate because I have stretch marks. So it, it's it's a weird thing. But I, I look back on that and I was not a happy kid. I was sympathetic dominant. My fight or flight mode was always triggered. And I was generally stressed and unhappy. I found out when I was 30, one of the major reasons that my I was just always stressed, it had nothing to do with anything I had control of or knowledge of. When I was born, I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. And it didn't cut off oxygen flow to my head, so I didn't get brain damage or anything. And I wrote that off as a, a trivial curiosity. When I was around 30... I got uh, I got divorced, and I was like, I need to understand like what happened, like like why did I do this? And it, I was just mystified by it. So I went to a, a personal growth like ten day thing, not knowing anything about what I was doing. Just a friend said, you need to go, and if I tell you what it is, you won't even go because you're too scientific. Like I find whatever. Like I'll just suspend disbelief, and I'm so miserable I don't really care. <laughs> so I I went and I met this this lady who'd spent more than 30 years studying uh, adult and, and child development and psychology. And she picked up right away that I, I was a little bit anxious, even though I didn't know it. And uh, I'm like, I'm a little angry, but I'm not a little anxious. And she, she said, tell me about your birth. And I'm like, my birth? Like, I don't know, hospitals, uh, vaginas, I'm pretty sure I was there. Like, like <laughs> and, and I just said, oh, yeah, and, and I, I know that the cord was wrapped around my neck, but it didn't do anything. Because uh, I didn't cut off oxygen. And she said, got it. And she put up a PowerPoint slide. And it was like a SWOT analysis. That strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. Like like full on had me on display. Like all of my strengths, all of my weaknesses. She just knew them. And I just looked at her. I'm like, how did you know that? And she said, well, it's science. Like We've been studying for decades what happens to adult personalities based on what happens around when you're born. And I was, I actually, I had a tear come to my eye because I was like, why didn't anyone tell me this? Like, there's no way she could have known that stuff. Uh, and so then uh, we sat down as part of that program. It's called the Star Foundation. Uh, and they're, they're still around. And they you go through all this unusual transpersonal psychology stuff and basically show you the behavior patterns and sort of the programming you have. And it's, uh, uh, it, it's it was really hard work. And I, I, I actually tend to prefer the neurofeedback approach these days, but I'm really grateful that she showed me that that is one of the things that affected me. I came into the world without any ability to do rational thinking or any like situational awareness, like pure reactivity, the way an animal comes into the world, because that's how you do it as a baby. You have emotions and feelings. Uh, and I came in being choked. <laughs> so, like, I'm coming into the world that's a hostile place. And if that's the way your core nervous system is, is set up, you actually optimize your system for survival instead of for thriving. And my, my first book is called The Better Baby Book. And it's what do you do before and during pregnancy to have healthier, smarter kids uh, based on the science of epigenetics and the environment programs you. Well, one of the first things you can do to program a kid to be calm and happy and focused is bring them into the world gently instead of bringing them in with beeping, uh, beeping machines, bright lights, uh, sticking them with needles and... Uh, potentially choking them with an umbilical cord. 
so when I had my kids, I had them at home. I'd say my wife had them at home. I delivered both kids in warm water. The risk of that is actually as low or lower than hospital birth for a healthy pregnancy. But more importantly, uh, so I don't think I was taking great risks there, but I don't think I was doing any harm and I was probably doing good. So it's cool that you bring your baby into the world however you can bring it in because sometimes that's not an option uh, economically or because you needed to have a C-section for an emergency reason. But I'm, I'm horrified at some of the birth practices, particularly in the U.S., because the rest of the world, including Finland that you talked about earlier, they don't do the same thing. Wow. So kind of a long story there, but one of the reasons that I was the way I was as a, as a teenager and all is because I was chronically socially anxious and my, my sympathetic fight or flight response was always turned on because I came into the world thinking something was trying to kill me. Mm. Wow. Um, so that raises you know, a question for me. I, I'm just, this is out of personal curiosity. So one thing I know about my own birth uh, is that my dad wasn't there for it uh, because he started a PhD in Australia. Uh, and I was born in India, and we met up with my dad, I think, three months after I was born. I'm curious, what is the impact of something like that that I may not even be aware of? You know, you probably have issues with the way you interact with men. (laughs) 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 Uh, And, and, you know, you could take that as, you know, like what 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 kind of an asshole would say something like that. I I see this all the time in in guys who go through the neurofeedback program. Mm -hmm. Everyone here on earth has issues with their parents because (laughs) it it doesn't matter that your dad had a really good reason for that. You didn't understand that at the time. So all the raw emotions go in and and the raw emotion was, I I want, I want my daddy. I don't have my daddy. Therefore I might die. Mm -hmm. Therefore I'm not safe. Uh, And therefore maybe men shouldn't be trusted. And, And you, and all this stuff happens. It happens faster than you can think about it because these are, uh, these are uh, raw emotions, they're instincts, they're, they're programs meant to run without the delay that a cognitive rational thought has. So later in life, uh, say you're sitting in a conference room and someone walks in who somehow triggered your pattern recognition system that looks kind of like uh, your dad or reminded you of him for some reason, and it triggers some emotion, uh, maybe it's distrust, uh, maybe it's fear, maybe it's worry, all of that is is below your level of consciousness unless you're a very unusual human being or unless you're very well trained. And once that program runs, then the feeling is received by the rational part of your your mind. And then the rational part of your mind says, oh, I bet I can't trust that person. And then makes up a story about why you can't trust them. But the truth, the actual order of events was you felt a feeling of distrust and then you told yourself a story about it. And like every bad thing I've ever done generally came from that kind of behavior because those feelings are there to keep you alive in a world where the big threats are tigers and falling off cliffs and starving. And those are not really things I deal with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Wow. So walk me through from high school to college to Bulletproof, like how you become known as this Bulletproof guy. Because I know we talked a little bit about some of that the last time you were here. I remember you told me you're one of the first people to ever sell anything on the internet, which I, I thought was so fascinating. So walk me through that journey a little bit. So you want like the end of high school kind of thing? Yeah, end of high school to you know the first company to to bulletproof, and then we'll start really kind of sure. digging deep into the biohacking stuff. So so I had a interesting high, high school experience. The first two years I went to a top ranked school in the country that was modeled after college, had thousands of students and a different building for each subject. And then the last two years of high school I went to a small farming high school <laughs> in the farming part of of Central California. Uh, where I was, you could say, not challenged academically. I was uh, number two in my class, and I, I barely did anything. Like, like it, it was 
it was not the, the best preparation I could have had for my college experience. Uh, I went to uh, UC Santa Barbara and I studied first electrical engineering after I failed out of physics the first time, which was the weeder class there. I'm like, this sucks. Uh, I switched to computer science, which meant I could put off physics for three years. Uh, as I, and I, I'll tell you, I struggled academically. I, I didn't do that well socially. I didn't do that well academically. I was very interested in entrepreneurship. And I was really worried about being able to pay for school. And my parents made just enough money. They worked for a you know, government-funded national laboratory. And I was like, all right, I have enough money saved to cover my tuition, but not necessarily books and what I'm going to cover with living costs. My parents gave me some money or loaned me some money for living costs, but I was, it was pretty tight. So I was always working. I worked at Baskin Robbins uh, for a couple years scooping ice cream. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a pretty good scooper. I got this huge muscle on my right arm from scooping. And at the same time, I wanted to start a company. I was so interested in entrepreneurship. The problem was that the most reliable source of income for me during summers was working in an auto parts warehouse. So literally, I'd come home from studying uh, computer science and, and all this stuff, and I would go into a hot and dirty building, and I would pick up like coil springs and gaskets all day long, numbing work, just looking on a list on a piece of paper, throwing them in boxes, taping up the boxes and shipping them out and doing it again all day every day because I made twice as much as I could make working at Dairy Queen or something. That wasn't so much fun, uh, but I did it. And after I would work, I would think about how to start a company. And I ended up starting a, a t-shirt company to sell uh, t-shirts at, at UC Santa Barbara. There's a giant Halloween thing. It's like 50,000 people show up. They usually light couches on fire, riot police come. Uh, which is why a Playboy at the time called it the the best party on the West Coast kind of thing. So I made T-shirts to commemorate this, and I hired a team of salespeople to go around and sell them door to door. And on the night of the event, we had a stand set up, and uh, and and we would sell you know ten thousand dollars worth of shirts in a night. And ten thousand dollars was a lot of money uh, back in nineteen ninety two or something. And it's still a lot of money, but it meant more back then because the dollar's weaker now. That was profound, what it would do. And it was right after that, like, what am I going to do the rest of the year? So I went onto, this, onto the internet, and we didn't have the web browser yet. It hadn't been invented. Uh, Mark Andreessen was probably writing code on <laughs> Mosaic 1.0, uh, the, the thing that was a precursor to Netscape, the, the browser um, that was one of the big browsers. And... I went on to something called Usenet, and I posted a description of this shirt I had made. It, was, it said, caffeine, my drug of choice, and I had a picture of the caffeine molecule. I interviewed a professor of caffeine science that I found on the internet uh, to, to figure out what to put on the shirt, and I put you know, trimethylxanthine, the name of caffeine. I had just discovered espresso. It actually got me the only A in calculus in my life was uh, an 8 a.m. class where I would have three shots of espresso, and I'd sit in class, and I could actually pay attention. Um, because I was um, medicating myself for ADD. The interesting effects from making that t-shirt were I, I posted in one of the, the Usenet forums, and literally within two weeks, I had sold t-shirts in 12 countries. Like, there was huge demand. And a, a professor from Rutgers University uh, was on another news group. It was called, oh, geez, INET dash marketing and 
until recently, you could find all these posts. This was like some of the original history of the internet. And Google, shame on you, Google. Uh, Google used to have the Usenet archives available for free, and one day they just stopped indexing them, so you can't search it anymore. But this conversation was a matter of record. And uh, I flamed this guy, uh, or trolled him, as I guess you'd call it now. And he's like, no one will ever make money on the internet. And, and my response was, well, I may just be going to a state university and all, or a you know, University of California, but I'm certainly not going to an Ivy League Rutgers school like you, but I'm already making money on the internet, so you're wrong. Of course, I was the angry kind of asshole college student. And, well, the next day the Miami Herald called and asked some questions about it, a lady named Rosalind Resnick who founded a company that sold for a quarter billion dollars in the first wave of dot-com things. And she, uh, she interviewed me. And suddenly 80 other media outlets interviewed me. And, Srini, this is just like what happens on podcasts. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you source someone cool for a podcast and then once they're on one podcast, everyone else calls them and then ask them the same questions on other podcasts. Well, I learned early on that reporters are the same way. Uh, they, they're just like the early versions of what we do right now. And the article got copied. I, I did all these weird interviews. And here I am. I'm this fat, almost 300 pound, a 22-year-old or something, 23 maybe. I don't know how to handle 15 minutes of fame. I don't really know what I'm doing. What I should have done was hopped in my car and driven 60 miles west to Silicon Valley and gotten funded. <laughs> uh, but I, I was also, at the time, this goes back to the way I was born, actually. When you believe everything's a threat, it's really hard to conceive of the idea that people want to help. And Mark Andreessen, and for people listening who are uh, like know more about uh, Mark Zuckerberg, well, Mark Andreessen was Mark Zuckerberg 15 years earlier. So this guy was the same age I was, he was doing the same types of things I was. He wrote the, the software for the first web browser and then went off to Silicon Valley. Notice I didn't because I was actually afraid. I didn't know I was afraid, but that was what was holding me back. And not only did he go to Silicon Valley to start a company, he teamed up with a guy who'd already started a billion-dollar company called Sun Microsystems. He teamed up with Jim Clark. So here's this, this kid, same age as me, and I'm sitting there going, geez, I should be doing this, like, but I don't know if I can, et cetera, et cetera, all the negative self-talk. And, and Mark Andreessen goes into Silicon Valley, and he's like, I'm going to team up with one of the most badass entrepreneurs I can find. I'm going to raise all this money. I'm going to start this company, even though I don't know how to do it. So he was willing to seek out and accept help. I didn't think that anyone would want to help. I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't learn that until several years later in life, where I'm like, oh, actually, entrepreneurs and just human beings get pleasure from helping other people. Like, I had to do some more learning about this. So I sold t-shirts for a while. Rosalind Resnick, uh, who wrote the first article about, uh, about my little t-shirt business being the first e-commerce on the planet. We didn't call it e-commerce because the word hadn't been invented yet. Um, I, uh, I got a call from her, and she said, help me write. So for a while, I became a reporter. I, I did a review of Mark Andreessen's uh, web browser, NCSA Mosaic 1.0 versus Netscape 1.0. That was published in PC World or something. And so I was a ghostwriter for a reporter, which taught me a lot about uh, how the reporting business works. I also got an offer from Rosalind, and she said, Dave, quit college, come work for me in New York City, I'll give you free room and board, I don't have a lot of money, but we're doing this startup that's going to allow permission-based email advertising. This is the one that she sold to DoubleClick for a quarter billion dollars, wow. and offered me a bunch of stock. And I was... 
I was on the edge about doing it, and she knew I could do some work. She also had noticed that I was ADD. I was my coat wasn't very good. I was reasonably sloppy, and uh, she actually made the right call at the last minute. I was having second thoughts, and she was having second thoughts, and she said, "You know, it's not fair for me to take away your university. Like you should finish your degree," which was a polite way of saying I don't think it's a good fit. <laughs> and she was right. I would have failed at that because yeah. I, I honestly I hadn't done my self awareness, my emotional work. I would have gone there and like procrastinated and avoided anything that might have been scary and I would have done it without knowing I was doing it and it would have been uh, it would have been an unmitigated disaster so good for her for dodging the bullet uh, bad for me for not getting stock that would have made me tons of money so fast forward a couple of years I, I've moved universities because computer science to me felt like uh, digging ditches uh, I, I love systems architecture I ended up running a program at the University of California where I, I would teach systems architecture Writing code to me is is actually not exciting, uh, and that was all they wanted me to do. I, I'm at the University of California, Santa Barbara. The computer science program there is well respected, and they want us to write software for uh, symmetrical multiprocessor machines and all this esoteric stuff, which is actually engineering wise very useful for certain applications. Meanwhile, I'm running a business, the first business on the internet to pay for my training, and I'm talking to my professors. And I'm like, are we going to learn anything about like networking or like how, how the internet works? And, and the answer was no. Like you're going to learn how to do an a analysis on this, you know, multiprocessor mainframe thing. I felt so disconnected that I found a degree in information systems, which is how do you use uh, computer science to solve business problems. I ended up graduating from California State University uh, with a degree in uh, information systems and artificial intelligence, which is called decision support systems at the time. So I I learned how to actually facilitate good human decision making algorithmically with machines, and that knowledge served me very well. Uh, I eventually did make my way to Silicon Valley. Uh, my first uh, my first real job out of college was at a, a a food brokerage. This is part of how groceries get into grocery stores. And I worked in the IT department there and learned that I absolutely sucked at human politics. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really grateful. There was a, a lady I worked with. Her name was, was Dorothy. And she was a, I think she was a grandmother. Yeah. She, she had basically stayed at home for 20 years. And then she decided she wanted to go back to work. And within a couple of years of going to work at this food brokerage, she was a vice president. <laughs> So she just knew organizational dynamics intuitively. Like she had social skills that I have never seen before, being that I'm mostly an Aspergery style engineer. She could recognize I was smart and that I was motivated and that I had no clue what I was doing. So she would sit me down and be like, okay, here's how to act. Like here's how to deal with your boss. Here's here's what's going to work. And and she mentored me and taught me like how to behave in the office to not get completely rejected right away. This was conscious learning on my part. And I, I'm really grateful that, that she just took the time and had the wisdom to do that. After a year, year and a half at that company, I'm like, I know the internet's the future. I started taking classes at the University of California, Santa Cruz uh, in, in like early internet technology things. And I went to one of my professors, a guy who was a VP at Netscape, and I said, look at my resume. Tell me what's wrong with it. And he looked at me and said, Dave, you've done so much in the field of IT already that I look at this resume, I don't know what, what to do with you. Like, delete everything that's not what you want to do. So I took my resume, I, I put it through the shredder, 
And what was left was internet, 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 internet. I took that out to Silicon Valley and I got a job at 3Com in uh, the IT department. I helped uh, what became part of Gartner Group write the first white paper on e-commerce. I helped to tie systems together in five countries. But more importantly, I started interacting with what was called the Web Guild. This is every webmaster we have today uh, came about from the work this group did in Silicon Valley. It's about 500 people who are figuring out how the first generation of websites were actually going to work. I got to give a big speech there and uh, to interact with these guys. And after a year and a half at 3Com, I took that same resume with more marquee company experience. 3Com at the time was a big, badass competitor to Cisco. Cisco kicked our ass up and down the street. And by the way, when I say up and down the street, it was exactly the same street, uh, Great America Parkway in Silicon Valley, where all the networking business and all of Intel sits, basically. So it was pretty interesting. I got two job offers. One was at the company, uh, one was at PeopleSoft, that's now part of Oracle. The other was at Exodus Communications, the company that held Google's first servers and most of Yahoo and most of Hotmail. I took one look at a data center and said, I want to be here. And I joined as a co-founder of the professional services team. Within uh, three years, we had 1,500 employees and the company, 1,500 employees in the group that I co-founded, 5,000 companies in the employee, or in the 5,000 employees in the company. And uh, we did $1.2 billion in revenue. I made $6 million when I was 26 for my stock options at that company, and I lost it when I was 28. Wow. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I think that was as far as you want me to go, right? Yeah, yeah. So that I guess takes us <laughs> right into bulletproof. I, I I do have some questions about the money, but we'll come back come back to that right. later. Um, let's get into the bulletproof concepts. Um, and you know, I, where I want to start is by going back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, you talked about this idea that what you do in the fir- in the womb is more important than the first year, and the, what you do in the first year is more important than the second year. Which you know, I think my first instinct listening to that is great. I'm completely fucked. Um, being 38, but clearly I'm not since you have, you know, made behavioral changes and done a lot of reprogramming. So let's talk about how the reprogramming happens, what results in behavior change, because, you know, I mean, even as a byproduct of 700 interviews at this point, I can honestly say the behavior change that I've had uh, from when I graduated to business school to now, like I couldn't predict this kind of behavioral change. I'm like a completely different person. Uh, in terms of what I'm capable of. So, I mean, what? Let, let's talk about how does the reprogramming happen, uh, especially if we feel we're at such a late stage in our lives? Well, it feels like you're at a late stage in your life at 38, mm-hmm. which <laughs> one thing I didn't mention uh, during that, that story there is I, I became increasingly aware of cognitive dysfunction that I was having, and I started spending hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to fix my brain and to, to work on losing weight. And I tried all these different diets and sort of the, the side of I'm hacking the internet, but I'm also hacking myself at the same time. And what you find is, is that you have more leverage than you think, even at 38. I started hanging out and eventually for the last mm, 12 years or so, I, I've been either chairman or president of a group called the Silicon Valley Health Institute. This is a nonprofit anti-aging research and education group that was started in 1993 by one of the, the few guys who helped to invent Ethernet, the networking standard that basically changed the world. So all this time, every month, we've been bringing in top-notch scientists and uh, researchers who are talking to the public about very cutting-edge findings in science about aging. The average age of our members has to be somewhere around 68 or 70. So I spend a lot of time working with people who are twice my age, and they're getting profound results. You want to talk about someone who's totally fucked. Look at someone who's 80 mm-hmm. and has accumulated all that damage, and now they figure out what they can do. They're still not fucked. Uh, one of my board members uh, was just an amazing guy. He was a board member. He was 88 years old and, and carried most of the weight of running the organization. He hadn't always been that strong. He got stronger because he changed the environment around him. Mm-hmm. A lot of the bulletproof techniques are profoundly popular with people over 50 or over 60 because they get their energy back. I was just old. I had arthritis when I was, I was 14. I had uh, senile cognitive dementia, except I wasn't senile. Uh, in my mid-20s when my brain wasn't working. So I went through it and I used anti-aging techniques to hack this stuff. 
so you're 38. You haven't even experienced andropause probably when you stop making testosterone. Like you have tons of leverage. So I, I would just outright reject that you're screwed down. <laughs> okay. And your leverage drops off non-linearly with time. In other words, uh, you have tons of leverage at the very early uh, early days, and you have less and less leverage as you go on. Uh, so you can basically, not entirely, but pretty much stop many of the aging things that are happening in your body right now. Mm-hmm. You have a really good chance at 38. I'm 43, by the way, so we're about the same age. Yeah. You have a really good chance of, of being able to live... And I say live, I mean fully live, like with a functioning brain and body, able to walk around and interact with people, uh, not in a retirement home where you know, you've lost your mental uh, capabilities. You should be able to do that in, until past 100. Uh, my goal, I, I'm doing everything biologically possible to live to 180 or beyond. And people are like, what? what? Like, people have no idea. I'm, look at where we were 140 years ago. <laughs> like... I'm talking about living another 140 years. I know technology is changing. I know how much control I have of my biology now that I didn't have 20 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, as we're doing this interview right now, I actually just wrapped my face in red and infrared LEDs that increase mitochondrial function and change the viscosity of water in my tissues. I'm not kidding. I just took that off my face a minute ago. <laughs> so like, oh, this is too bad. I was going to say you need to snap as a picture <laughs> to include I, in the show notes. I, I could turn it back on. Yeah, but right. like this sort of stuff wasn't possible. We know mechanisms. I'm, my next book is about some of these mechanisms of action and how you can control the mitochondria in your body. Mm-hmm. So when you say, oh, I'm screwed, I'm 38, I'm like, you just don't even know how unscrewed you are. Right. <laughs> like You have so much leverage. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of different things. One is the reprogramming aspect of this. You know, you talked a lot about the stories that we contain, and, and you know, I think we're we we're really good at turning fiction into fact uh, by our nature because there's this, you know, we don't have this stimulus response pause that we're all capable of. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I want to talk about it also through the lens of just overall cognitive function. Like what are the things that can be done on a daily basis? Um, really, maybe maybe the best way to ask this question is how can I change my daily behavior from the way I sleep, the way I eat and the way I work to become what you would say bulletproof or, you know, kind of like Bradley Cooper and limitless. So you want to change your daily behavior to have, uh, well, let's just say specific goals. Okay. One, one of the reasons I, I defined biohacking the way I defined it. And I, I didn't trademark that term. I, I wanted to create a community movement around biohacking, but I, I have some of the original biohacking domains and, and like defined the word and wrote the blog post about, is there a space in biohacking or not? By the way, there is no space or dash in biohacking. Uh, I took a community poll five years ago about that. <laughs> the, the definition is changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have full control of your biology. Okay. Now, for you, full control of your biology might mean I want to have tons of cognitive uh, abilities, I want to have lots of energy, I want to look a certain way. For another person, it could be like, I want to look like a balloon animal. Like, I want 400 pounds of muscle, right? And, and like, I actually have great respect. And another one could be, you know, I, I am a stay-at-home parent. I just want to have enough energy to be calm, even though my kids are asking me the same question 500 times in a row, and I really want to scream, but I'm just going to have enough energy to not scream right now. Mm-hmm. All of those uh, are admirable goals, and all of those are achievable, but it's different techniques. Okay, let's do this. I will make it more specific so that okay. we have something much more actionable. Yeah. So 
as I, I told you, I just had a book come out. I also am beginning work on a second one. So I one want to be able to wake up in the morning and write for longer periods of time, like sustained focus for longer than I can sustain <laughs> it right now. Um, okay. But I'm pretty good. I mean, I get my thousand words a day, no problem. Um, That's it? I mean, I can hit it harder if I really push it. Um, you know, and when I've messed with supplements or neuroenhancers like modafinil, definitely can push it longer. Um, so that's one. Um, I want my overall physical level of energy to be higher, uh, on a daily basis and I want to sleep better. So, you know, I've, I've talked about this on the show before I have dealt with periods of clinical depression, um, which have caused a lot of problems with sleep. And, um, you know, I want to work on, on that as well. So I guess those are really maybe three things. So I guess, you know, how would I change? How can I have better cognitive function so that I can write for longer periods of time, absorb more of what I read, um, and focus on what I'm working on for longer periods of time? How can I increase my physical energy level? And then how do I optimize my sleep? So I guess three things. So we, that way you have something much more specific to work with. That is much easier to work with. Okay. So energy and focus come together, and we'll talk about sleep after that. Okay, perfect. And I'll also tell some stories about what I do when I write, because with, with all with, with all respect intended, if I only did a thousand words a day, I would be uh, I'd be sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you want to have more energy and and more ability to write it really comes down to one thing, one fundamental thing, and that's electrons. Um, At the end of the day, you're a battery. (laughs) Your job is to make enough electrons to do what you want to do. We call that energy. And you get your energy from food, you get your energy from uh, air, and you get your energy to some extent from light and magnetism, Like, like there are important elements there. The, the problem that most people have is that they have unstable energy supply to their head. Your brain and visual processing system are probably using 20% of your calories. Your heart, your eyes, and your brain have about 10,000 mitochondria, these little power plants in your cells, uh, per cell. So they're very dense in energy consumption. The rest of your body has one or 2,000 per cell. So you have five to 10 times the energy consumption and energy production ability in your brain. That means, especially if you're smart and you're focusing a lot, if you have slight perturbations in your ability to bring energy into those cells, it's basically energy brownout. And when that happens, you don't come up with the word you want. You don't pay uh, as much attention as you want to. You get tired, you get distracted, and your willpower goes down because you have less raw energy. It actually is like that scene in The Matrix where they look at Neo before he's out of The Matrix and they look at him and say, you know, shut up, copper top. (laughs) And uh, you really are a battery. So you can hack your battery. And one of the simplest things that I know of to do is something that I'm, I'm quite well known for. And it's bulletproof coffee. Mm-hmm. But it's not for the reason that you might think. So I'm not trying to sell you coffee right now. Uh, I'm actually going to tell you about ketones. There's an oil. The, the recipe for bulletproof coffee is a special kind of coffee beans that don't inhibit mitochondrial function. There's a kind of oil called brain octane. And this is extracted from coconut oil, but it's not coconut oil. And it raises ketones in the body three to five times better than coconut oil or fasting. Ketones are fat-burning molecules that you normally only get after several days of fasting or eating a very high-fat, low-carb, Atkins-style diet. So 
Why are ketones so important for you to write? <laughs> when you take a molecule of fat, which is what you're, you're using to make ketones, you can get 147 electrons from it. When you have a molecule of glucose or sugar, you get 36 electrons for it, from it. Uh, and I've done several uh, interviews with uh, the luminary scientists in, in studying ketones. And ketones are associated with reductions in Alzheimer's disease. By the way, I learned about brain octane working at an anti-aging research group, <laughs> this nonprofit thing that I run uh, years ago. And uh, they're also associated, ketones are associated with a reduction in just about every chronic uh, degenerative disease you can think of, uh, which is amazing. So anything that raises your ketones is probably going to make you live longer, but they're also profoundly anti-inflammatory. You can go on a special diet or you can drink Bulletproof coffee. Bulletproof coffee, because it has brain octane oil in it, will raise your ketone levels beyond what food could do. So what I did last night when I was working on my book, I've got to deal with Harper Collins for a book about mitochondria. And this is coming out early next year. My deadline is three weeks away and I'm two thirds done with the book and I'll, and I'll hit it. And I'm going to Burning Man <laughs> between now and then. So last night I started writing at 11 and I wrote from 11 a.m. or sorry, 11 p.m. to 3 a.m., which for me is a great writing window. Uh, I change the lighting around me so it's all red lighting so I don't mess up my circadian biology very much by doing this because I'm not sending myself the light signal that says it's the middle of the day. Uh, I'm, my body knows it's nighttime. I'm just up. And then I had decaf bulletproof coffee which raised my ketone levels. So I had sustained focus and energy from ketones. Uh, I took a handful of smart drugs, not modafinil. I don't generally use that anymore because it doesn't do much compared to what it used to. I'm a fan of something called aniracetam, which increases memory I.O. And memory I.O. is the ability to get things in and out of your memory. So when you're trying to write and you're focusing, and what was the, what was the name of that technique? There was a research paper that I wanted to reference. It's, it's at my fingertips. It's always there. It's effortless. Uh, that makes a, a really big difference in order to just have raw ketones. And it turns out when you're burning ketones, even if you have carbs present, I had rice at the same time. I had, I had the Bulletproof coffee because I wanted some carbohydrate. And that ability to burn ketones reduces inflammation in the brain. When you reduce inflammation, your energy production machinery, part of it's called the electron transport system. When there's less inflammation, the electron transport system shrinks. You have to move electrons over a shorter distance it's more efficient. So it's like tuning a race car engine. I, I did that to my head. So I took smart drugs. I drank Bulletproof coffee. Earlier in the day, I had the, the very healthy foods. I didn't have foods that inhibit mitochondrial function, which is a major problem. I didn't have a glass of wine on, on this idea that it's somehow going to make me uh, smarter. <laughs> wine is delicious. It's just not an anti-aging substance or a performance-enhancing substance. So when I'm writing, I don't drink. Mm -hmm. uh, and also... There's a great argument. If you look at what pretty much every great writer uh, throughout history, like the, the, the really great writers, pretty much all of them were drinking coffee and probably smoking. <laughs> Smoking's bad for you. I've never smoked. Yeah. But if you really want to write and, and you want to like look at your thousand words and, and just be like, thousand words, that's nothing, uh, I would suggest get a nicotine a lozenge. Uh-huh. 
uh, or there's other nicotine delivery systems. Do not smoke. I don't even recommend e-cigarettes. Like Those are bad for you. And on occasion, as a smart drug, microdose nicotine. I wrote a couple blog posts about it. Okay. It, it is one of Mother Nature's smart drugs. There's, wow. there's basically three smart drugs from Mother's, Mother Nature. There's caffeine, <laughs> nicotine, which is a mitochondrial stimulant. They both are. And the other one is uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, but you don't want to take those and then write. But you might want to take those <laughs> once or t- like once or twice a year. Yeah. <laughs> those can help you form synaptic connections, and, and they come with some risks. And I'm not I'm not endorsing those unconditionally. Like sure. people can go nuts from that stuff. But there are times when uh, for for driving self awareness or for dealing with uh, trauma or anxiety or just for making connections that weren't there before, uh, those can be profoundly effective. And at, at this point, some people get really mad when you say that. Like, look, most of the technology that we rely on today was made by people taking hallucinogens. Like, the DNA was discovered with hallucinogens. Uh, Steve Jobs, LSD, most of the people I know in Silicon Valley, maybe not most, half of them, at least once or twice had profound experiences that might have involved substances that they weren't supposed to be on mm-hmm. that helped to shape the way they shape the world around them. Like, so th- this is, in my mind, something that can be really effective. I'm only bringing that up because if we're going to talk about Mother Nature smart drugs, there's uh, traditionally used by indigenous people hallucinogens, um, which are, are a very occasional use. And then there's daily use, which is <laughs> nicotine, mm-hmm. uh, not smoking. Smoking's bad and, and will we'll take, take away your life and it's addictive in a way that occasional use microdose nicotine is not. And then caffeine. Like if, if you do those things, you're like, oh my God, and stack that with aniracetam. You'll do amazing things. The other thing that I do, Srini, that you could consider is I, I use electrical stimulation on my brain. Mm-hmm. So when I'm going to be writing, I hook electrodes to my head, and I either run TDCS or more likely something called cerebral electrical stimulation. And you can program what, what state your brain will be in. <sighs> pretty pretty heavy-duty stuff, but wow. that's what I did last night. Wow, that's that's crazy. Um, so, a couple of questions. One, I, I know that you have the brain octane uh, oil on your site, and also I'm curious about the coffee beans. Like, if people are to go into a grocery store to buy it, what do you recommend? Uh, well, and also I would um, for the coconut oil. Like, do you not use coconut oil then if you have the brain octane oil? Here's the the thing. I want I want everyone to be able to do this for as, as cheap as possible. Uh-huh. If you use coconut oil, there's a study. Uh, that's coming out uh, that, that tests specifically something called MCT oil mm-hmm. versus coconut oil versus brain octane. And I would love to tell you just mix coconut oil in your coffee. I can tell you that's better than putting milk in your coffee. Milk actually takes away the antioxidants in your coffee. That it's just it's, it's biochemically not a good idea to mix milk and coffee, okay. which is why butter. But coconut oil does not raise ketones more than eating nothing. It, it is well, it's commonly believed that it does. That is not what the university research shows. So coconut oil is an upgrade from milk, but it does not give you ketones in your brain the way you get from brain octane. We're talking five times more ketones. Uh, so brain octane is different than MCT oil. There's four kinds of MCT oil. Some of them work to some extent, some of them don't. And it oftentimes causes uh, what we call disaster pants. Okay. In the early yeah. days of discovering what worked and what didn't, I used to use MCT oil and it was kind of a common knowledge that, yeah, you'll feel great, but you'll need to run to the bathroom. And Brain Octane got rid of that because it gets you more ketones with less oil. Mm-hmm. So it's like coconut oil is weak beer, 
Brain Octane oil is vodka or Everclear. Like it, it's highly distilled. It's 5% of the oil that's naturally found in coconut oil. It's just that 5% with no flavor. So we're using it as an exogenous or outside the body source of ketones. Mm-hmm. And the idea of we, we keep hoping that coconut oil will, will raise ketones. Unfortunately, uh, the science that's coming out of the U- University of California, San Diego, doesn't support that theory, and neither does my experience. Okay. Coconut oil is better than milk. It is nothing like brain octane. Okay. And the brain octane, that, I know that you have it on your site. Are there other places where it can be purchased? Yeah. You can go to Whole Foods okay. uh, in seven of the regions. Uh, they, they carry brain octane. Uh, and I, I always appreciate if people go to bulletproof.com and, and sure. pick it up. And, and we'll link that all up as well. Sure. Then there's the coffee beans. Mm-hmm. I quit drinking coffee for five years along this journey I described earlier. Coffee got me my only A in calculus in college. <laughs> I, I really appreciated uh, coffee. But at, after I, I had lost my, my $6 million around when I was 28, I went off of coffee because it was, I would drink it and two hours later I would need more and I'd need more and I would feel like jittery and kind of anxious and sometimes I'd get a headache. And I ended up going to Tibet. And I was off of coffee at the time, and I discovered yak butter tea, which was the genesis for the idea of Bulletproof Coffee. And when I came back to the U.S., I I had a a cup of coffee, really high-end coffee, and I felt really good. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm cured. I'm not sensitive to coffee anymore. This is great. The next day, I had another cup of coffee, and I felt just like I'd felt on coffee before. And I just remember thinking, wait a minute, this isn't me those were different cups of coffee. And I dug in really hard on the agricultural research around like, what is, what's, what's going on? Because I'm a hacker. Like I, I'm really a computer hacker. <laughs> and uh, all that decision support systems training and artificial intelligence. And I really realized there's a lot of variables in coffee. And I set, a, I set up this goal of creating a, like a decision tree for coffee, where if I look at coffee as a system that starts in the soil, ends up in my cup, I could optimize the system for cost or for flavor, which are the two settings you can get today. And I said, I'm going to optimize this for reducing things that are bad for you and increasing things that are good for you. So it was changes in agricultural and in green coffee processing and then validating that the changes worked with lab testing for 27 different toxins. That's what generated the coffee beans for Bulletproof Coffee. The difference for me, though, is I drink that one cup in the morning uh, made with butter and brain octane, and I'm good to go. Like I feel great. I may have a, a second cup because I like it, and, and coffee is good for you. I'll have it at lunch, and I might do some decaf because I like it, and it's good for you later in the day. But really, it's one cup of caffeinated coffee, so I drank less coffee, but I didn't experience the crash that universally happens, especially in the U.S. The reason for this is that a long time ago, about 20 years ago, when we first started discovering mold toxins were profoundly affecting human performance, most governments, even China, uh, Japan, uh, Venezuela, and all of the European Union put limits in place for the most common toxin in coffee. It's called OTA. And this is something that directly inhibits mitochondrial performance. So in other words, you have these little, little power plants, little motors in your cells. If you get OTA in your food at five parts per billion or higher, you can't taste that, by the way, it makes you make less energy. My mitochondria are relatively sensitive because I grew up in a house with toxic mold. So I probably feel it more than most people. However, there is no argument for increasing your level of OTA. What 
happens, and I have this, I, I have a, a former president of the Specialty Coffee Association telling the story on video on my YouTube channel. It's like I, you couldn't make this stuff up. He's in Japan, and Ethiopia, Ethiopian coffee is supposed to be really good, right? Uh, Ethiopia sends a thousand containers full of coffee. That's a lot uh, to Japan. Those big shipping containers, and Japan does the testing and says, "Oh, these don't meet our standards for mold toxins," so they rejected the shipment. And so I asked this president of the Specialty Coffee Association, "What happened? Like, where did it go?" And he said, "We sent it to America because there are no standards there." So. What I'm saying here is that coffee in America, even the really flavorful, amazing coffee that's made by the best baristas on earth, it's designed to taste good. It is not designed to be low in toxins that make you feel cranky and jittery and yell at people and have sugar cravings three hours after you drink it. Uh, to, uh, to validate that, <laughs> in my first book, The Bulletproof Diet, uh, I actually published uh, a, a crowdsourced research that we did where we had people try coffee purchased at their local coffee shop versus the lab-tested bulletproof coffee beans, just black coffee or with butter, and to look at the difference on seven measures of cognitive function. (laughs) And we found statistically significant improvements in cognitive function on six of the seven when you drank coffee that was without the toxins versus coffee from uh, untested coffee, coffee from normal coffee processing. So what I'm saying is parts per billion levels of neurotoxins actually matter. And by minimizing my exposure to neurotoxins, I'm expecting to live longer. But more importantly, I feel better and I perform better every day while I'm working on living longer. Bulletproof coffee is part of that. Okay. Um, Are there other options for the coffee that are accessible in our grocery stores yet or... If you have a uh, like a natural foods grocery store there, like there's national distribution for Bulletproof coffee. So a lot of the independent resellers, uh, uh, depending on what region you live in, uh, Central Markets in, in Texas has it. Uh, Whole Foods carries brain octane oil in some markets, not others. I'm working on getting the coffee beans in there. But right now, your best bet is to head to Bulletproof, and I'll just send you coffee every month or every two weeks. What will happen is you'll drink a lot less coffee. Uh, it costs about two bucks a bag more than normal coffee to cover the cost of lab testing. Uh, you get the five pound bag. It's as cheap as buying uh, any kind of coffee that you would buy at Starbucks or something. Like, like it, it's not terribly expensive when you get five pounds. It is. I mean, we do a lot of testing, more testing than any country, any anyone on earth. And the process for making the coffee required putting infrastructure in in Guatemala and in Colombia in order to do it. So like it, it's, just, it's different. You feel different. And when you try it once, you're like, oh, actually, I didn't crash three hours later. I didn't have the afternoon food coma. I didn't want to eat the cookies. <laughs> Stuff like that. Uh, it's subtle but repeatable. And there's just tens of thousands of people who, uh, who have left testimonials uh, over the last five years about like, I can't even explain how different it is. So it, it's worth a shot. And okay. you, might, you might tolerate normal coffee you know, just buy whatever's cheap or just, oh, it's organic. But organic coffee is still thrown in a, a cement-lined tub with unfiltered water, and it sits there for two days. Uh, well, it basically lets the fruit on the outside of, of the bean uh, spoil, and that's where the, the problem comes. I don't allow that to happen to the beans uh, that I sell people. Okay, so let's talk briefly about sleep, then I want to ask you a question about money, and then we'll wrap things up. All right. So where do we begin with sleep? Well, the... Sleep starts with darkness. <laughs> For four hours after you are exposed to, uh, to light, especially blue light or white light, 
you don't make melatonin. That means that if you're staring at your phone before you go to sleep, you are not going to make melatonin for half of the time you're supposed to sleep. Melatonin is your sleep hormone. It's a repair hormone. It's anti-inflammatory. It's anti-cancer. The lady who first really highlighted this was called T.S. Wiley, and she wrote a book called Lights Out uh, in, uh, I think, the early 2000s, summarizing hundreds of research studies about how important this was. And she was one of the big people who influenced me to start writing about hacking your sleep. And uh, I, I believe I'm the guy who who uh, popularized orange glasses in the biohacking community because orange or amber effectively blocks most of the blue spectrum that inhibits uh, your sleep. So for you, this means dimming the lights. It means going into every room that has a white or a blue or a green LED and putting a little tiny piece of electrical tape over it. I'm not kidding. One tiny blue LED in your room sends a signal to your body. It's absorbed through your skin or through your eyes uh, that says it's not nighttime. That shade of blue is not present uh, in, a, in a normal world, and it is highly biologically disruptive. I, I actually believe that we are going to experience huge problems because we've switched to LED lighting. Mm-hmm. Even during the day, the LED lights that we use make five times more blue light than normal incandescent or halogen bulbs. My house has no LED lights in it uh, except red ones, which I use in the middle of the night. When I stay up late writing, I have red LEDs. It looks like a submarine. I can see just fine, but my body knows very well that it's pitch dark because red light doesn't affect your sleep one bit. Wow. So black out your room. If you, if you live in a city, in the last three years, they've replaced your streetlights with biologically harmful streetlights that make way more harsh white-blue light than they used to, which is correlated with having more cancer for you, unfortunately. So that means your curtains need to be really good curtains. Uh, You should have blackout curtains. And when you open your eyes in your bedroom at night, it should be actually dark to the point that you can't see your hand. If you haven't achieved darkness in your room, then do what it takes to do that. Usually that that means investing a 100 bucks in better curtains or pull-down shades with tracks on the edge. But it, in, in urban environments, it's more important than ever that you sleep dark. Uh, lower your room temperature, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, or even a little bit lower can make a big difference in sleep quality. Uh, before you go to sleep, and the optimal time to go to sleep is before 10.45 p.m. for most people, uh, because you have a little circadian uh, cortisol surge that can happen around 11 when you get your second wind. Uh, but going to bed at 10.45 or earlier is, is nice, which means you need to dim your lights and stop looking at your phone <laughs> at least an hour or two before that, except you're going to look at your phone. So wear the orange glasses, or I, I wear glasses, but I also I put a screen protector on my phones and my laptop, and it's something I manufacture. So yes, I have a financial incentive. No, it won't change my life if you do or don't buy this. I, I manufacture it because it's cool and because I wanted it. It's called a Zentech a screen protector, you put it on your phone, it filters out the most harmful spectrum of blue that most suppresses sleep. It, it's not a complete solution, but even if you're, you have your phone with Flux or one of those apps that, that dims the screen at night, this cuts out all of this narrow band spectrum that's most harmful for your sleep. So I have that on my phone, I have the glasses on, and then I can look at my phone, I can do whatever I want to do, but if I'm staring at a big screen TV with an LED backlight, and I have LED lights in my bathroom, I'm not going to sleep well, and neither is anyone listening to this. 
so let's see. We talked about lights. Yep. Talked yep. about temperature. Let's talk about relaxing. Okay. So, do you have a hard time uh, like going to sleep or staying asleep? Um, I mean, at this point, you know, it's going to sleep that it's gotten a lot better in the last year, but there was a period of time when I was under an immense amount of stress and I, I was having this issue where I would fall asleep and I would find myself awake at like three in the morning, um, unable to fall back asleep, often woken up by like heart palpitations. Um, oh, so, so you would wake up at three with heart palpitations and I couldn't get back to sleep no matter how hard I tried. All right. So one thing that happens is you run out of energy. Uh, I, I have a, a cool lecture I, I'm giving at the, the Bulletproof Conference in September, September 23rd. I'm, I'm giving a, a talk about exactly this, so it's fresh in my mind because I was just uh, writing parts of it. We talked earlier about getting electrons into the brain for writing. Your brain believes that if there's a shortage of energy for it, that it is a, a species-level survival event. Because if you don't have enough energy in your brain, your brain can't control your system, and then a tiger might eat you. Like it, it, it's that level of deep, deep-seated survival. So when your blood sugar crashes, uh, or you just don't have enough of it, which oftentimes happens in a dysregulated system when you're sleeping, because you're not eating when you're sleeping, uh, around between 3 and 5 a.m., this is the common time it happens. Well, as soon as your energy level uh, in the brain goes down. Your brain's like, I don't have enough glucose. I'm working on repairing myself here. Get me more energy. Since there isn't food present, it uses two hormones. The first hormone is called cortisol, and the second one's called adrenaline. Both of those hormones will increase blood sugar levels by causing breakdown of, of muscle or fat. So you get a cortisol spike at three to five in the morning. Cortisol and adrenaline wake you up. And the reason your heart's palpitating and the reason you can't go back to sleep may be that you ran out of energy and you got a cortisol spike. So there, now your brain has the energy it wanted. Unfortunately, you don't have the sleep you wanted. There's two fixes for this that I write about on on the Bulletproof blog. Uh, It depends on on your biology. I don't know how to tell you which one works other than to say try it. The first one is raw honey, not cooked honey. Cooked honey doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Raw honey, about a tablespoon taken before bed, can stabilize your blood sugar for six plus hours. If you find that having raw honey before bed uh, works, uh, try raw honey with brain octane oil, just mixed together. Mm-hmm. Brain octane oil provides non-sugar energy for the brain. Uh, I exist in a state where my brain always has ketones because I use brain octane with every meal every day. And my brain always has some glucose because I eat a low-carb but not a no-carb diet. So I eat vegetables and I eat uh, occasional sources of starch, but not sugar, which means I have the ability to rely on two different energy sources. If you do brain octane and this raw honey trick before bed, you have a source of ketones and you have a stable source of glucose, you will not have fuel problems in your head. And that really matters for how you're going to feel. So that would be one experiment. The other group of people do better with a protein called collagen. And yes, I am actually talking about stuff that I sell. And I, I, I'm not here to sell stuff. I'm just telling you I make this stuff because I couldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a VP at a big company when I started Bulletproof. I, <laughs> I just wanted all this stuff. So uh, anyhow, what you'll find with, uh, with collagen is some people prefer protein and, uh, protein and brain octane before bed. Some people prefer that sugar 
I think it's a, a core biological thing. I don't know why it's not the same. Collagen's a neat protein because it's a building block for all of your cells, but it's also called animal starch. <laughs> we don't get collagen in our, in our food anymore unless you drink bone broth or you eat Jello. There is no source of collagen because it comes from boiling bones and cartilage. Uh, if you eat unusual forms of Chinese food like uh, pig's ears or chicken feet, you would get it too, or beef tendons. But most of us don't eat that on a regular basis. What I do is I make a collagen protein. It's a powder. It has no flavor. I put it in my Bulletproof coffee uh, much of the time. <laughs> that way I have this source of collagen. But you can take it as a powder before sleep and water. And it actually can break down into something called butyric acid in the gut. And it's, it's a calming, non-stimulating type of protein that some people really like before bed. So address your fuel source in one of those two ways, raw honey or collagen with brain octane. And you'd be shocked at what that does for your sleep. If you're still waking up, I think you want to get a hormone panel and see what your daily cortisol rhythm looks like, see what your thyroid hormones look like. When you're racing hard, I always look at, at thyroid and also, you should keep a food journal. No, it's no. entirely possible that something you're eating at dinner is triggering the racing heartbeat four hours later. Mm -hmm. I find that's true if you eat a food you're allergic to or if you eat a food that's contaminated with uh, problems during storage and processing. Uh, particularly, this is bacteria and fungal growth. You're not going to see it, but if, you, like, if I drink a, a cup of really flavorful coffee, uh, four hours later, I'm going to have a racing heart and heart palpitations. And that's true even of decaf. It's because of these mitochondrial inhibiting toxins that are in them. So you may have a particular sensitivity there. But that, that'll hack your sleep pretty dramatically, what we just went through. Wow. Um, so this has been awesome. There's been so much stuff. So I have one, two more questions and we'll wrap it up. Um, okay. I have a very, you know, a question about money and, and wealth. And I mean, you, you know, you mentioned that you made $6 million at a really young age. You lost it all. I mean, and, you know, I mean, now you're a prominent entrepreneur. I mean, everybody kind of knows you. And I know you've, you've been in, you know, really prominent positions as well. I mean, what is, how has all this changed your narrative around money and wealth or has it? <laughs> oh, it's profound. So when I was 16, I, I, I read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. And it, it really, it, it's like the, the quintessential book on, you know, how to set goals and, and make them come true and manifest reality and all this. So I said, by the time I'm 23, I'm going to have a million dollars. And I put this on my mirror and I read this every morning for a few years. And it obviously didn't work. I was 23 and, you know, I had a good job, but I didn't have a million dollars. But I, I, I figured it worked well enough, right? Yeah. 20, age 26 and $6 million. The problem, though, was that uh, I told myself, you know what? I'll be happy when I have 10. Mm -hmm. I, I literally told myself that. I could have walked away with $6 million. All I had to do was quit my job and sell my stock. But because I was in a prominent position at this company, I was privy to our mergers and acquisition uh, information. I was responsible for deciding whether we should do deals based on the technology side of it, like not the finance side. So in other words, like this technology is valuable, this is not, so therefore we should do a deal. That meant it was illegal for me to sell my stock. And, well, I worked there. So I had basically a time when over the course of nine months, my net worth plummeted from $6 million to like $100,000. That makes you feel like you're going to die. And the biggest lesson that came out of that was, number one, I was no more happy when I had $6 million. In fact, I was less happy because of relationships and, and stress and, and, and health uh, when I had $6 million than I was when I didn't. And 
the fact that I told myself when I finally hit this profound amount of money, oh, I'll be happy when I have 10 million. No, happiness is a program setting. I, I, that's why I do 40 Years of Zen, all this neurofeedback stuff. Um, I, I run a neuroscience lab in Seattle now <laughs> so I can hack my own brain and, and the brains of other really successful people uh, to get around that kind of programming because I'm capable now of being happy regardless of financial outcomes. Uh, and studies have shown there is, you, you can buy happiness. It takes $75,000, which means if your basic needs are met, it actually does correlate with increases in happiness because you're not stressed about survival. After $75,000, money doesn't do anything for happiness whatsoever. You tell yourself a story, it will, but when you have more money, it doesn't make you more happy, doesn't make you less happy. It's all about you. It's all about your narrative, all about your programming. Mm-hmm. That, that was my big learning there. Was money, doesn't, money doesn't make you happy. Uh, losing money sure does make you stressed, though. Mm-hmm. All right. One final question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? It's an interesting question. Unmistakable? I've never actually wanted to be unmistakable, so it's hard for me to uh, it's hard for me to parse that. Let me think about it for a minute. I, I, I guess when I think about unmistakable, I, I think about like branding. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm pretty good at branding. Uh, with with all the things I've done at Bulletproof, but I don't. Uh, what makes something unmistakable? It, it it has to do with being memorable. And what makes something memorable is is usually the story that's told around the thing, uh, right? So y- you can take uh, two identical uh, scenarios, and one of them is entirely uh, unmemorable, and, and you won't remember it. And the other one, you tell the story around it so that people can connect with it. And it becomes very memorable. And when something is memorable, it's unmistakable because you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know how it feels. And, and it, when something's unmistakable, it's not that you saw it and you remembered it. It's that you felt it and you remembered the feeling. So I, I would look at more the emotional side of things about what makes something unmistakable. What's the emotional connection to it? That's what makes something unmistakable. Awesome. Well, this has been just uh, thought-provoking, eye-opening, riveting. I mean, you just packed it with so much valuable information, and uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was, it's always a pleasure. It was a lot of fun, and I love sharing this stuff, so I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.